Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nicholas Carr started his blog Rough Type in 2005 when MySpace was a fast-growing social networking site and Facebook was a Palo Alto startup. Now in his book, Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations, he's collected the best of those posts and added influential essays such as Is Google Making Us Stupid? and Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Privacy, which were published in such magazines and sites as The Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, and Politico. Carr's favorite targets are zealots who believe so fervently in computers and data that they abandoned common sense. Cheap digital tools, he says, do not make us all the next Fellini or Dylan. Social networks are not vehicles for self-enlightenment, and likes and retweets are not going to elevate political discourse. Nicholas Carr is the author of The Glass Cage and the Pulitzer Prize finalist The Shallows, among other books. He's former executive editor of Harvard Business Review. He's written for The Atlantic, New York Times, Wired, and other publications, and lives in Boulder, Colorado. Joins us now for the hour. Nicholas Carr, pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I want to start with uh, with politics and the I guess the, the hope of some that uh, social media, the internet, are going to elevate political discourse. You push back on that. We had the first presidential uh, campaign or uh, debate to last night, um, and uh, you have a very interesting um, essay called "The Snapchat Candidate," which you 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 mentioned Trump. You talk about Trump. Um, and you talk about the McCain attack. This was one of the early instances where we thought this was going to be a campaign killer. Uh, you say the usual usual drama that the uh, that the uh, media sets up is the uh, candidate steps in it. He is then forced to apologize profusely, and then the media decides whether to forgive him or not. But that was just overwhelmed by Trump's volume of attacks. That's right, and, and I argue that. Every time a new medium, whether it's radio or TV or now uh, the Internet and social media comes along, it, it tends to influence not only how, how people get entertained and so forth, but how politics gets played out. And um, so, so I think what we saw, for instance, when television played the main dominant role in campaigns is that there were a lot of uh, the coverage was built around this kind of narrative cycle, uh, what was called the daily news cycle. And, and often you'd see this kind of little drama where, uh, you know, a, a candidate would make, an, make a mistake of some kind or say, or say something offensive, what was typically called a gaffe. And then there'd be a lot of hand-wringing among the media and, and the candidate would be pilloried. And then finally the candidate would uh, apologize or somehow back away from the statement. And and when when Trump went after Senator McCain, you know, actually criticizing the fact that he had been a, a prisoner of war and and in fact what most Americans see as a war hero, you know, in the past that would have almost been a disqualifying event. At the very least, uh, you know, the candidate Trump in this case would have had to <laughs> offer some apologies and back away, and that never happened. And I think the media all expected it to happen. If you look at the coverage. It, you know, it, it, it plugged right into that traditional narrative cycle. And Trump just went on tweeting and, and not only didn't apologize, but kind of just ratcheted up the, the level of kind of offensive to some comments. And so it, it sh- I think it, it gave an indication, a pretty clear indication, that the rules of campaigns in political discourse are changing now that things like Twitter and Facebook are are for some people the main way they follow news, including elections. I think some are wondering, including me, uh, is this 
uh, Trump's the first, it seems like. He's the innovator. He, he's seen something that the others didn't see. Is this uniquely Trump, or, or, or is this going to change, or, or are others going to jump in here? Because it seems like, in the, at least in the Republican primary, others tried to strike the same tone and it didn't work for them. Right. I, I mean, I think, you know, a candidate, a more traditional candidate like Jeb Bush, for instance, um, continued to work under the old media assumptions. Um, and, and, you know, his, he, had, he was doing some stuff on social media, but it was kind of just routine, you know, stuff, fundraising, things, things that already were well-established. I mean, even back in uh, the first, uh, back in 2008, we often now refer to that as the Facebook election because Obama uh, used Facebook and social media very well, but he used it mainly for, for consolidating his base and for raising money. It wasn't so much the way candidates interacted with the public until this year. And so I think it will be. <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think this is going to, to affect, you know, broadly the way politics gets done. And so I don't think it's just a Trump phenomenon even though he was particularly well-suited and continues to be particularly well-suited to kind of the, the mode of discussion that, is, that often gets a lot of attention on social media, which is much more about being provocative than being informative. Um, and I think you can see other, you know, the other major populist candidate, for instance, Bernie Sanders, also uh, coming from a different, very different political standpoint, but also used social media very well and got a lot of attention um, uh, galvanized a lot of people by sending out pithy comments, kind of a steady stream. Uh, whereas the more traditional candidates, like, like Jeb Bush, for instance, and also like Hillary Clinton, uh, during the primary season at least, struggled with that kind of uh, kind of avalanche of, of small comments uh, and, and often very provocative comments. That kind of social media demands if you want to get attention there. Well, based on that, you mentioned this is anytime we get a new medium, then the, the rules for politics change based on past, uh, you know, the past arc of, of how this happens. Uh, what do you think is next to it? One thing that, uh, you know, Trump opponents are bemoaning and, and the media certainly is is uh, bemoaning is the loss of that gatekeeper. Right. The, you, you write that uh, anchors are reduced to reading tweets and they, they don't have the power. They, they had to shape the, the narrative. Uh, certainly doesn't seem to be elevating the political discourse. What what's the next uh, step in the in the evolution? Do you think? Um, and, and you know, I, I should say there there are good and bad things about this phenomenon. Sometimes the uh, you know getting all your information from a TV anchor person or it wasn't always the greatest thing. So so there is something to be said for more uh, democratization of of the political messages that, that you get and people being able to comment. But I, I think we've kind of traded the old gatekeeper, the, the editor and the anchor and the TV producer, for a new kind of gatekeeper, which is the companies that run big social media or, or search services, the Googles, Facebooks, Snapchats, Twitters of the world. And instead of uh, – they do their own filtering, and, and, you know, as more and more people get – essentially all their news through their Facebook feed, then, then, you have, then we have this mysterious Facebook algorithm that determines what news gets promoted and what doesn't, which nobody has access to, and yet, yet will continue, I think, to play a big role in, in what people actually see. But more than that, the, 
you know, as you get information through uh, a service like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, it kind of it, it, it determines the form that those messages come in. Uh, you know, what works uh, on social media are very brief kinds of messages. And I, I fear that, you know, we've already seen, you could argue, for many years, the kind of a growing superficiality in political discussions where it's all about kind of sound bites and headlines and, and people rarely are encouraged to go more deeply into a candidate's views and, and positions. And I fear that as, as social media gets more, uh, a bigger and bigger role in, in campaigns, that this trend will simply accelerate, that, that will, will be even more kind of uh, in this kind of superficial stream of very terse comments that then get a lot of reactions and, and, and not only shape what goes on on social media, but also shape the TV coverage and the radio coverage as, as everybody kind of um, focuses in on, on provocative comments. So unfortunately, I, I think the dream that a lot of people had about the Internet and, and that, that it, by putting all this information online, it would allow people to go deep into issues and look at other people's perspectives. I think what we might actually be seeing is it, it does very much the opposite in kind of make sound bites even sound bitier if that's uh, <laughs> if that's possible <laughs> right um uh, by the way uh, you uh, i guess we could say you embrace this a bit with uh, the the middle section of your book theses in tweet form which yes, is I, which is kind of fun yeah I, you know i i think any kind any time you create a new form of expression uh for people it will it will encourage you know, creativity, people, I mean, the good thing about human beings is we're very creative in adapting to forms, whether it's the form of a sonnet and poetry or a haiku, and, and I think you see it in Twitter, too. Some people are are uh, quite good at coming up with witty, interesting comments in 140 characters, and so I try to, I try my hand at a little bit of that in the book. Uh, by the way, the, the historian H.W. Brand is, uh, he's doing a history of the United States in tweets. Yeah. <laughs> is kind of a fun project. Uh, let me just uh, share a couple of my favorites, uh, just to have you comment on if you, if you want. Um, this is the first series from 2012. Increasing the intelligence of a network tends to decrease the intelligence of those connected to it. <laughs> I can certainly relate to that one. Yeah, and I, I'm a little wary of expanding too much on an aphorism because <laughs> what, what makes it good or, or not so good is, is that it's terse and kind of provocative. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I, you know, everybody... The internet is not just this, you know, this inert, um, neutral cable the way, say, a telephone line was, where, where the only thing that matters is what you say to another person, what that person says to you. In fact, uh, the internet through, through companies like Google and, and all the others kind of they shape the information that flows through it. And, and they can do this in ways that we all value, but also it tends to make us more dependent and reliant on that. So if you're, if you're looking for, a, for information about a topic, you know, now everybody goes to Google, they Google the, the words, and they ne almost never look behind the top couple of search results or the top couple of advertisements. And so we become... I think the danger here is is you become so dependent on the internet services to kind of shape what you look at and and 
and all sorts of other things, uh, that you don't engage your own mind or your own curiosity deeply. So it has the, again, it has a kind of effect that's very different from what we expected it to have. Just a couple more and then we'll move on. Um, memory is the medium of absence. Time is the medium of presence. There's, there's something profound there. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I, was, I was trying to think about the, the role. I've spent a lot of time in, in my work thinking about the role of memory in, in our lives, in our intellectual lives, and, you know, as a source of knowledge. Um, and it did seem to me that, that we experience things in, in kind of two dimensions, um, presence, things that are around us immediately, and absence, things that we think about that are no longer there, whether it's a person or a, an event, uh, but still kind of is very vivid to us because it exists in our memory. And so that was an, a, that was an attempt to kind of figure out, you know, how these two things, presence and absence, kind of immediate experience and memory, how, how they play such a large role in shaping not only the way we think, but also kind of how we define our experience and even ourselves. And that's uh, somewhat related to attention span. And you, you, you worry some in, in some of your writing about uh, what technology is doing to us, um, with, you know, with regard to attention span. I, I, I think I see just anecdotally, you know, an effect on me. I, I certainly see an effect on myself as well. And that's, in fact, you know, several years. I, I used to be a big technology enthusiast and a big you know, promoter of computers and everything, and 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 I began to notice, and this was close to ten years ago now, that that it did seem to be eroding my ability to pay attention. Um, that you know, if I was, if I sat down with a long book or something, or, or or wanted to do anything that required screening out distractions and interruptions and really focusing on one thing, I, I found it harder and harder to do because kind of my mind craved going back to the computer screen and Googling and getting all the messages and notifications and alerts we, uh, we crave. And so, and so I, I do, I have come to believe, and this is you know, based not only on my experience and looking at how others behave, but also on some of the science of how we, science of cognition and how our minds work, that we are essentially training ourselves to be constantly distracted, constantly interrupted, to multitask, to be stimulated by lots of little things coming at us. And the cost of that is it becomes harder and harder to tap into the kinds of thinking that require attentiveness, you know, contemplative thought, reflective thought, introspective thought, the the modes of thinking that, at least until recently, most people considered the highest forms of thought that were available to human beings. It's, uh, you know, retaining our humanity in the digital age. We'll, we'll talk about that. Also, you'd, uh, you have a fascinating essay that uh, closes the book, talks about radical human enhancement or transhumanism. So it gets us into a, you know, a possible future in which we fuse with, with technology. Uh, let's take a break. Um, when we come back, um, I'll have uh, Nicholas Carr read uh, from the introduction to his book, Uh, Here's the beginning sentence of that passage. The greatest of Americans' homegrown religions is the religion of technology. Um, And we'll talk about that and and the development of his blog, Rough Type. He's taken uh, the best of the posts of of that blog, which started in 2005, 
and added uh, essays and reviews. And uh, the result is Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations. Nicholas Carr is the author. He's our guest for the hour. More follows this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State Historical Society, hosting the Rural Utah Western Issues Conference, Friday, September 30th in West Valley City. Agenda and registration information available at history.utah.gov. Hi, I'm Candy Palmiter. The kids say it doesn't matter, but older folks say it does. I'm talking about cursive writing. In the digital age, how important is your penmanship? The debate will be had on the show, coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Etched Magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest, celebrating the desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is a New York Times bestseller, Nicholas Carr. He's also a Pulitzer finalist for The Shallows. He's author of The Glass Cage and other books, and he writes the blog Rough Type. It began in 2005 when MySpace was a fast-growing social networking site. Facebook was a Palo Alto startup, and uh, now he has this uh, collection out. Uh, he, of course, you, you recognize him as uh, the author of such influential essays as Is Google Making a Stupid? and Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Privacy. And uh, some of those essays are included in this uh, book. Um, so, uh, by the way, you can join this conversation. Hope that you will. If you have a question or comment for Nicholas Carr, 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at upraxcess. So, Nicholas Carr, before I have you read this uh, selection, uh, you talked just before that about how Rough Type came came about. You you made the decision to to jump into this new world of blogging. Yeah, and this was as you said back in two thousand and five. Um, so, blogs had been around for a while by then, but it was really it, it was around two thousand and five. I think that that there was big excitement about what was called the blogosphere, a term that was very popular then. You don't hear that much anymore. And it was also the start of social media. Um, uh, so as you said, Facebook was, was just getting going. People were checking out MySpace and, and other things. And so 2005 was a moment um, in which not only media was changing with the arrival of blogs and so forth, but, but in which the, the internet and the way we use computers was, was changing fundamentally as well. And I'd been writing about technology for a number of years by then. And so I decided to uh, try my hand at, at, at blogging, and at first, it you know I, I started it started my blog Rough Type before I really <laughs> had a sense of of what I wanted to say, um, but it was during the course of 2005 when there was all this sudden hype about how um, social media and social networks would would kind of create a utopia on earth where we, we, we'd see everything democratized and, and everything decentralized and everybody would become their own publisher. Uh, that, that struck me as exaggerated then, and I began commenting on some, on some of that, and that became one of the main themes of the blog and also uh, 
one that translates into the into the book that that just came out as well. So let me have you read this passage. This is uh, Roman numeral uh, page sixteen, uh, just the bottom of the page, and then over the paragraph top. Yeah. Um, so this is from the introduction, and, and kind of tries to connect what I was seeing uh, on online at the time and also continuing to today with with a tradition, I think, in American thought. Uh, And so this is what I wrote. The greatest of America's homegrown religions, greater than Jehovah's Witnesses, greater than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, greater even than Scientology, is the religion of technology. John Adolphus Etzler, a Pittsburgher, sounded the trumpet in his 1833 testament, The Paradise Within the Reach of All Men. By Fulfilling its, quote, mechanical purposes, he wrote, the United States would turn itself into a new Eden, a state of superabundance, where there will be a continual feast, parties of pleasures, novelties, delights, and instructive occupations, not to mention vegetables of infinite variety and appearance. Similar predictions proliferated throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, and in their visions of technological majesty, As the critic and historian Perry Miller wrote, we find the true American sublime. We may blow kisses to agrarians like Jefferson and tree huggers like Thoreau, but we put our faith in Edison and Ford, Gates and Zuckerberg. It is the technologists who shall lead us. So as you mentioned before you read the passage, this is a very American impulse, isn't it? I think it is. And in fact, I was kind of... um, surprised when I when I started digging into into history and and other people I should say have have uh, noted this this theme in, in American political and philosophical thought um, it, there is this this deep sense and it, it does go back to the I think the, to the early years of the country that um, that technology and it started off you know back uh, in in the early days of the Industrial Revolution with factory machines and so forth, that technology in and of itself would be a force of social, social progress and, and would ultimately uh, free, free us to pursue the, the creative works, free us from work, free us from effort, give us a life of leisure, allow us to live in harmony with one another. Um, and so it, it, all of those, all of those, um, beliefs you can see echoed uh, in in the rhetoric about the internet and, and about personal computers. So I do think that this is not what we've what we've seen. You know, with the what I think is an exaggeration of the effects of the internet is nothing new. It's very much a part of this tradition of techno utopianism that that runs through American history. The central theme that you found uh, in writing the blog, rough type. Um, it is this this idea that there's potential danger in this excessive enthusiasm, right? But, but uh, you know, I, I can hear people saying, well, you know, to borrow from uh, Larry David, it's it's the message of curb your enthusiasm. But uh, but you know, can't we have fun? Can't we dream? What uh, what what's the danger? Do you think? Yeah, and I think you know we want to have idealism, and we want to have. Uh, people pursuing invention and, and and across a broad range of, of of technological and other innovations. What the danger is that we begin to see progress in technological terms, um, rather than looking at technology 
as a aid to social and cultural and personal progress. We, we simply focus on the mechanical innovations, the computer innovations, on the belief that that in, the, in and of itself will, will necessarily lead to a better world and to better lives for all of us. And, and I think what happens is two things that are, are dangerous. One is we fall into the trap of being attracted to novelty. Um, and we see that very much these days with you know, every iteration of a smartphone or a new smartphone app becoming this cause for celebration and, and, and for kind of over-enthusiasm. And, and, and we rush to adopt whatever's new without standing back and saying, you know, how is this actually going to influence my life? Is it going to, is it going to help me engage more deeply with other people and with the world around me? Uh, and with knowledge, or is it going to make me more superficial and more distracted and, and, and simply overstimulated rather than um, uh, thinking and perceiving more deeply? And second, it, 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 it tends to make us defer to big technology companies. Um, and so we, we kind of end up venerating uh, companies like Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon and the people who run them, uh, or or who found them, and we don't again step back and say, you know, what is the how do how do these companies think about the human condition, and and how are are their products and services deeply influencing uh, the way we communicate, the way we think about information, the way we think about you know political discourse, and all of these things. So so the problem with techno utopianism is it tends to turn us all into into kind of enthusiasts rather than balancing enthusiasm for what's new with skepticism uh, that, that reflects a deeper consideration um, of society and culture and doesn't just believe that the next new technological thing is necessarily a good thing. Uh, to, to illustrate uh, your first point there, that we tend to focus on the technology, be seduced by the technology more than the content, uh, you have a very interesting essay called In the Kingdom of the Board, the One-Armed Bandit is King. And you uh, you cite poet Kenneth Goldsmith, who wrote in Los Angeles uh, Review of Books in an essay. He says he recently uh, he felt an urge to listen to some work by the avant-garde American composer Martin Feldman. And then something very interesting uh, happened. He, he, he got focused more on the technology than on the music of Feldman. Right. He, he wanted to go... He, he, he realized he hadn't listened to, to music by this composer for a long time, and so he went to his computer and dug out you know, the, the folders that had uh, the music he had downloaded by the composer. And, and after all was said and done, he, he listened to a few seconds, I guess, of, of one of the tracks and then moved on to some, some other thing on the computer. And what, what he realized is that rather than the music being of central importance to him, fiddling around with music files and, and music software and you know, hitting play and pause and, and all of the things that we do with our smartphones and our computers to manipulate files and manipulate the experience of listening or reading, those kind of mechanical processes had become more important and more enjoyable to him than actually listening, listening to the music. And that, it struck me that I could, I could relate to that because, you know, it used to be before we started listening to everything uh, online on our computers and smartphones, 
you know, you'd ha- you'd have a, a vinyl record or a CD, and you'd put it on, and you'd kind of listen to the music. And as soon as as soon as we start using our computer to play these things, you get all of these buttons, and you can pause, and you can skip, and you can shuffle. And I realized that a lot of times I would listen to the first, you know, 30 seconds or minute of a track, and then click next or click shuffle and and listen to the next one and and so the my experience of the art uh of the cultural product had been had kind of transferred to an experience of the mechanics of the computer and how it manipulates these things which is a very which is i think common in a lot of our lives now but when you think about it, it is a very kind of strange <laughs> transformation of our experience of culture and art then you you go on you conclude the essay talking about consumerism and attention uh, I'll just read this uh, portion of a couple of paragraphs. Uh, Nicholas Carr writes, In a world dense with stuff, a captivating interface is the perfect consumer good. It packages the very act of consumption as a product. Click by click, we consume our consuming. And then you go on to write, You give the mechanism your attention, and it tells you that your attention has not been wasted. Right. And that that's, that shows us how... And this is going to sound that I'm, uh, I'm attributing kind of diabolical intentions to computer companies and internet companies. And, and that's, that's not the case, but I do think that they, they have become very good at manipulating our behavior, um, giving us, I, th- I think what, what the internet companies and computer companies know is that we are easily stimulated, we are easily distracted, we want to know everything that's going on uh, around us, we get fascinated with the little technical details of experience, and therefore they come out with more and more of these things that keep us glued to the screen, keep us tapping and clicking like buttons and so forth. And in that piece, I I also draw an analogy with slot machines and, and how they've developed in, in Las Vegas and other, and other places, and how they slot machines are very much about transfixing the gamblers on the mechanics of the machine. Um, so it's not even so much about winning or losing. It's about the uncertainty every time you put more money in, into the slots and press the button or pull the handle, the uncertainty about what's going to happen. And, and it turns out that Psychologically, we're, we become very compulsive or even very addicted to anything uh, that, that gives us some new experience without quite knowing what the experience will be. And so it can be a slot machine and whether it will pay off or not, or it can be glancing at Facebook to see if somebody has sent you a new message or has liked something you sent out. These are all tie very tightly to our psychology and often, unfortunately, create this kind of compulsive and obsessive behavior. One of the themes, I think, uh, running through the book is that, uh, you know, technology is technology. Uh, we, you know, we, we need to remember we're human and that technology is a tool that can, that can help. But the, the, this utopian view that technology can raise us to the, the heights within us maybe gives way more often to um, just amplifying those baser impulses. One of your quotes, you're talking about Facebook, the desire for privacy is strong. Vanity is stronger, and who you are is what you do between notifications. The, I, I think all of us, at some theoretical or abstract level, 
worry about things like privacy. And, and we know when we go online at this point, I think that everything we do is, is being tracked, is being monitored, um, is being collected in databases and then sold to marketers or advertisers. And so, so more and more as companies collect all this information,